Our reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 50. We're uh, come to the, the closing two chapters of Genesis that we're going to consider together this morning. And as we read Genesis 50, we're um, drawn into the story at the point where Jacob and all the family have come down from the land of Canaan to settle in Egypt, to be cared for uh, and nurtured by Joseph. And now at this point, Jacob has finally died. And being reunited uh, with his family, we find Joseph now comes Uh, and uh, mourns his loss and prepares for his burial. So in Genesis 50, we read, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If I now have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mitzrayim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus, his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years 
And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is God's word, and we give thanks to him for it this morning. Just a couple of Sundays ago, we had Remembrance Sunday, an opportunity for us to stop and to reflect on the sacrifice that others have made on our behalf. But it's also an opportunity for us to remember something more fundamental about who we are. Back when I was in Cowdenbeath, we had uh, a couple of Remembrance Day services on Remembrance Sunday. Uh, and one of them, the first one, uh, just, just after lunchtime, was uh, particularly focused on the First World War. And the interesting thing was that over the course of our time there, we passed that point where it had been a 100 years since the outbreak of the First World War. And we were at the point where really there is no one alive who um, remembers that war. There is no one alive who participated in that war, and yet we persist in remembering it. And the importance of remembering wars like the First World War and the Second World War and subsequent conflicts is not just to remember sacrifices that have been made. It's to remember who we are as a nation, as a people. These wars and the effort that we expended in them tell us something about our character, our nature, not just our history, but our present and also our future. It tells us who we are and where we are going, which is why it's so important that we do participate in remembrance each year. As we come to the very end of the book of Genesis, we find Moses summing up this portion of the history of God's people in such a way that it communicates our foundations. It tells Israel wandering in the wilderness, preparing to enter into the promised land, and it tells us today who we are. Not just where we've come from, and not just where we stand right now, but also where we are going. It speaks to our character, our nature as Christian men and women. And so it's important as we finish the book of Genesis that we don't just end on on a a note where we think, well, that was nice. It it told us uh, something of the history of God's people and by extension, our family. It's important that we consider these words and see what they say about our foundations so that we're able to look to the future and know how we're to live each and every day until the Lord uh, draws us home or returns and, uh, and um, recreates the new heavens and the new earth, makes all things come to their satisfactory conclusion. And in these two chapters, 49 and 50, what we see Moses revealing in the life of Jacob and of Joseph and his brothers is that God's good purposes are constantly being worked out. 
Now, I know we've touched on that subject in a variety of different ways because it is really one of the key themes of the book of Genesis, that God's sovereign plans, his sovereign purposes are constantly being worked out in the world and through the lives of his children. And yet we find it um, uh, displayed in a slightly different way uh, in these closing two chapters that are helpful for us to consider. As we think about our foundations as a Christian people, where we've come from and therefore where we're going, we see in chapter 49 that our foundations are in God's sovereign salvation. Something strange uh, awaits us in chapter 49 of Genesis. The story doesn't end, perhaps, in the way that we feel it ought to. We know that that the previous dozen or so chapters have been concerned with the life of Joseph. And we would be right, I think, to assume that the book of Genesis would just primarily focus on Joseph as being the center of everything. He's been elevated from a a relatively unknown tribe in in, uh, Canaan to being the prime minister of all of Egypt. And yet, that isn't the way the story uh, comes to a conclusion in chapter 49 anyway. We might expect that as Moses draws the, 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 the um, account to a close, as he draws this portion of Israel's history to a close, that he might want to focus on Levi as his ancestor, so that if um, people are going to follow Moses through the wilderness and into the promised land, that Levi might be established as being a leading light in Israel's history. And as he took the lead then, so I take the lead now. And yet that isn't what happens either. What we actually see in chapter 49 is Judah being given the best position by his father. And we must remember that Moses has really no reason to do this. It seems to sit at odds with the whole flow of Genesis. Because really what we're doing at this point in the book is we've focused on Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph. And so it makes no sense for Moses to to draw this in right at the conclusion of the story at, at this point. Joseph is the favored son of Jacob. Benjamin is the next favored son. And so surely from Jacob's point of view... They would be uh, the ones that that Moses would want to really emphasize and focus on, would would be the ones that Moses would set up as being the great deliverers of God's people. As we've said, Moses would perhaps think to elevate Levi. And yet what we find is Moses consistently telling the story of God's people, focusing not just on where they are at this point in the story, but drawing their minds back to the very beginning. In Garden of Eden, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we find as sin enters the world, God tells Adam and Eve, I will deal with the problem that you have made. One of your children, the seed of the woman, will come, and through him, all of this that you have made wrong, he will make right. And we find on into the New Testament in Hebrews and in many of Paul's letters, we have him picture Jesus as the one coming uh, to put right what uh, Adam and Eve put uh, wrong at the beginning. We have that language of Jesus being the second Adam, as being the the better son that comes uh, in light of all that has gone on before. And Moses doesn't forget Genesis 3, even as he is telling Israel their history at this late point before uh, the the exodus happens uh, a few hundred years on from the death of Joseph. 
And so we find in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, this thread in the narrative being woven by Moses as he literally verbally communicates, tells the story of Israel to them as they're gathered in the wilderness. This seed of the woman will save a people. He will reign over them. He will bless the world. He will make a nation set apart for the glory and the worship and the praise and the service of their God. This is your foundation, Moses is saying. And he doesn't lose sight of that in the closing chapters. Because at the end of the day, as important as Joseph has been, as favored as Benjamin is, as crucial as Levi is in Moses' own history, it will not be through them that the seed of the woman comes. And in 49, we find Jacob blessing his sons and favoring Judah as the one through whom the right to to rule, the savior, the, the king of God's people will ultimately come. The scepter will be given to Judah and will not depart from his family line. And so we find Jesus coming then thousands of years later described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. We find that language in Revelation. Um, And so Jesus comes as a son of Judah, the seed of the woman, the saviour of the world, who will not only save Israel, but will rule over her as her king. This is your foundation, Moses tells the people. You have been set apart by God to be saved for his pleasure and for his glory, that you might be a light to the world, that people from all over the place might come and have this king, this savior, rule over them, that they might be set free from sin as you are set free from sin by this one. This is who they are. And this is who we are as a Christian people today. J.I. Packer in Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God says that we will lose all understanding of who we are now if we lose sight, if we forget where our foundations are. This is where we've come from. God's plans have been worked out in such a way that he is saving a people for himself to glorify him, that he might enjoy them and take pleasure in them, and we might take joy and pleasure in him, which is why the first answer in the, West, in the Catechism of the Westminster Confession is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is who we are as a people. And if that's not what we are about, if we are not focusing on that in our worship, in our devotional lives at home, in our uh, our discipleship as we seek to follow Jesus, then we're going to find ourselves straying off into all sorts of um, errors and going off in all sorts of wrong directions. We find that if that's not who we are and what we're about, the the glorifying of God because he has set us apart from the world to to glorify his name and uh, to find pleasure in him, we find that we'll make the Christian faith all about us. It will be about satisfying me, about giving me pleasure, about fulfilling the needs that I feel need to be fulfilled and not primarily about us focusing on the Lord. So we find that our worship will be about my taste, about my desires, that the setup in, in our churches will be about the way things ought to be from my perspective, because this is how I like it being. We'll find that we will tend to focus on 
certain theological interests which have caught um, our, uh, our attention and we'll exclude other things. Sometimes we'll even exclude God himself. We become obsessed about a certain book of the Bible or about the study of a certain area of Christian doctrine and so we, we almost forget that these things are supposed to lead us to glorify God and enjoy him, to worship him with everything that we have and every fibre of our being. And they become an all-consuming thing in and of themselves. We find that we will begin to lose that sense that we are together God's people. Because the Christian faith becomes about me and what pleases and satisfies me. And not about us as a family who in no way deserve to be saved by God. And yet he sovereignly chose us and saved us by grace. This free gift that we, we had no right to claim and which he gives us together as, as one family. And we forget that. And so we tend to exclude others or, or turn against others or forget that they're there because this faith is about me as an individual and not about us as one family sacrificing and serving one another so that we are all able to labor to that end of glorifying God. If that is our hope, then we will constantly be seeking to build one another up and challenge one another and push one another on and, and encourage each other. But if it's not, then, then we can just Ignore one another and forget each other and just focus on me and, and my little world and the things that interest me. But there's no place for that because our foundations lie in the sovereign salvation of God that we find Paul talking about in Ephesians 2. You've been saved by grace through faith and it's not that of your own. It's not a work that you have accomplished so that, that you might receive um, uh, that reward because of your merit. It is a gift of God so that no one may boast that they were deserving. And you've been saved for good works that the Lord has prepared beforehand for you to walk in. You had no control over your salvation. You didn't know God or want to know him. You couldn't see him. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and yet God called out to you and opened your eyes. He gave you life and faith. He blessed you. That was his sovereign salvation at work in your life. And from that moment on, you live for him and for his glory and good pleasure. We're part of his family by that grace. And so we find that if we get our foundations right, we understand where we are, then we find that our lives and our worship and our service together are all uh, put into right perspective. And we can loosen our hold, as it were, on me and the things that I desire and the things that I want in this life and in this faith that I have. We find, secondly, that our foundations are in God's sovereign providence. Into chapter 50, in verses 1 to 14, we find that Jacob's life has finally come to an end. And we see that he has been blessed in so many ways through the providential work of God. God has ordered things to ensure the survival of his family. 
He's provided a wife for Jacob and then children for Jacob and then a home and wealth beyond anything they could ever have dreamt of. And there is no way when we read back through the account of Jacob's life that we could ever credit this to Jacob's cleverness or ingenuity. You see the work of God constantly in his life, blessing him by grace. And more than that, though, in his death, Jacob is taken back to be buried in the field that Abraham purchased from Ephron the Hittite. And as the whole of Egypt, it seems, goes up to mourn Jacob, they bury him with his family. And we see the hope of God's promise that they will be given a place, a land in which to live and be secure, so that they are able to give themselves wholly to the worship of God, free from the, the constant fear and anxiety that, that being a sojourning, homeless, nomadic people brings. We find that all of this comes by the goodness and the grace of God. The grave of his fathers is all that Israel really owns. But it's from that grave in four centuries to come that his people will inherit their resting place. This has been the work of God that must take place in order to bring about the right circumstances for the Messiah to come. But it all comes about at the pace that God desires so that all things work together at the right time and in the right way for God's plans to be worked out perfectly. There is no rushing things. There are no shortcuts. Everything will be worked out by God in the fullness of time. And so we find it will be centuries before Moses leads the people out of Israel and they claim the land that God has promised to them. It has been a whole lifetime from the birth of Jacob's sons to Joseph being elevated to the position that he's in in Egypt and the leading of Jacob's people down into Goshen so that they might really flourish and thrive and be a nation and be led out by Moses in the century to come. And so we find that as we consider our foundations in the sovereign providence of God, we recognize that God is working things out according to his own time and his own plans so that in the fullness of time, everything will be worked out perfectly. We find that God's providence is the working out of God in the world according to his own wise counsel, his will. At no point in either Jacob's life or the life of Joseph do we ever get the sense of uh, sort of fatalism or determinism that we can just do anything and everything and it doesn't matter because God's in control and God's ordering everything so it doesn't matter what I do, I know it will be in God's plan. There's no hint of that. There is always a sense in which they do what is right because God is using them for his plans and his purposes. And they will have to give an answer if they do things that are sinful, beyond question. They acknowledge the work of God goes beyond their understanding and God accomplishes everything he has said he will do. But at the same time, they acknowledge their responsibility to see God's plans worked out in their lives and among their people. And we have the joy of that same balance today. We get to relax knowing that the work of God will continue to roll out across our lives and across the world so that even when it looks like the church is being crushed and defeated, God is still in control. God will not let his people down. We can relax about that, that it doesn't all rest on our shoulders 
But at the same time, we have the joy of knowing that God is working at His plans and His purposes through us. And so we should labor with everything we have for His glory to make ourselves useful instruments in the hands of God. Knowing that when we fail, that all is not lost, and when we triumph, great glory will be given to God. And through it all, we have the privilege of knowing that God uses people like you and people like me to to bring about the eternal salvation of men and women all around us. To bring about glory given to God's name and praise given to him. Through, through our own feeble and faltering efforts. Is that not an amazing thing to know that we stand in the providence of God? That is where our foundation lies. And so we can be confident in the work that we do, in the worship that we give, that yes, it won't be perfect, but it will be used by God to see his plans accomplished at the right time. And what this means for us in church on Sunday when we worship is that we come together and as imperfect as we might feel our worship is, we come and we glorify God. And that is no small and insignificant thing. It's part of his plans and his purposes for us as individuals, but for us also as a church, as a fellowship. When we go out and we build one another up outside of the Sunday, we phone each other and encourage each other or even challenge each other about things that we've said or things that we're thinking. We are building up the body of Christ, the church, the the people of God in the world so that we have deeper faith, so that we have um, a better understanding of our God, that we're better able to glorify him. And again, that is not a small or insignificant thing. God uses all of that to refine his people. And when we go out into the world and we share the gospel, however faltering our words might be, however imperfect they are, however much we feel that we may be failing in witnessing to our faith, God uses it all so that his kingdom may grow, so that his kingdom may come in Ladywell, and that his will may be done here as it is in heaven. This is not small and insignificant. This is the responsibility that we've been given and the place where we have been put to exercise that responsibility in the full knowledge that God himself is the one who is sovereignly providing for us in every way so that we can accomplish his will. And in the end, he is the one who is sovereignly saving a people for himself. This also means for us, as we look to the future, that just as Israel see their land, their place of resting foreshadowed in the tomb of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so we see our future land of rest foreshadowed in Jesus' tomb. But unlike that tomb of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus' tomb sits empty for We have resurrection in our future. That is our hope, that the seed of the woman has defeated sin and death, and we have our place with him through death for all eternity. When Jesus rises from the tomb, he plants a flag, as it were, for the new heavens and the new earth that one day will be ours and will be held for us as a future hope just as Abraham's tomb was the hope of God's people for nearly 500 years. We find that our foundations lie in God's sovereign salvation. They lie in God's sovereign providence 
in the world and through us. And lastly, we find that our foundations are in God's sovereign provision. We find from 15 through to the end of chapter 50. Joseph's brothers realize they're in trouble. Their father has died. Perhaps the only thing holding back Joseph from pouring out his vengeance on them. And so they come and they plead for their lives. And much to everyone's shock, while hurt at everything they've done, and he is hurt at what has been done to him, and he did suffer, we find that he harbors no grudge against them, and instead he blesses them richly with forgiveness. He sees that God has made provision for the salvation of his family, his people, through the callous actions of his brother. And so we find that through him salvation has come. So he forgives them. He sees God's sovereign provision at work in the background. And so he recognizes that God has accomplished his purpose through Joseph's life and through his brother's actions. God is their God and they are his people and they can freely worship God because of all that has happened. It doesn't make their actions good. But it does make sense of all that has gone on and what Joseph wants is his family flourishing and thriving under God. And they're going to. And so he's happy to let everything else go to rest. The nations are blessed. God's family is preserved. Their land is waiting for them. And at every stage, God has provided for them. They've never lacked what they've needed to fulfill God's plans and His purposes in God's time. And that's the issue, isn't it? In God's time. We know what God's ultimate plans are, don't we? We know that new heavens and new earth, a new creation, sin will be gone. The praise of God will go on for eternity in completely unfettered perfection. And yet we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And that's our problem. We get fixated with tomorrow and we ignore the eternal plan. And yet, in Jesus' own ministry, he encourages those listening to him in Matthew's Gospel that we've gone through in our prayer meetings. Now, look at the the birds of the air and the the flowers of the field. They don't have any anxious hang-ups about the uncertainties of tomorrow. They plan for the worst, they hope for the best, and they just get on with living their lives here and now as fully as they possibly can. And so it is for us. We can't know what tomorrow will bring, but we can know with certainty that God will provide for us so that we accomplish His plans and His purposes. So we can live as fully and as passionately as His children today, regardless of what tomorrow brings. And we know that when tomorrow comes, we will have the opportunity to do it all over again. And should our lives end, should tomorrow not come for us, then we will be ushered into the presence of God and we will be able to praise Him and glorify Him freely and fully for all eternity. So don't worry, Jesus says to His followers, to His listeners. And so it is for us. God has provided for us for His purposes for their time, for our time. God will expect us to live fully today for Him, not worrying about tomorrow. I uh, like reading books about being organized. You can read, there are whole 
libraries full of books um, like Getting Things Done by David Allen. It's the book if you want to know about organizing yourself and, and getting yourself to work as efficiently as possible. I think I like reading these books because it saves me from actually being organized. If I can just read about being organized, that's almost good enough. But these books are written to make you as effective as you possibly can be at working. And the gist of most of them is this. The effective way to work is look at the project that you're currently working on. Forget worrying about all of the ins and outs about how this will be accomplished um, and, and will be brought to a conclusion. All you need to worry about right now is what is the next action that I need to perform to push this project on a little bit further. And then when I get there, what is the next action that I need to do? And the next one, and the next one. Don't worry about the whole thing. It's like that um, little um, saying I'm sure you've heard uh, from time to time. How do you eat an elephant? Whole elephant, massive creature. How do you eat a whole elephant? You eat it one bite at a time. And so it is with organizing our lives. We just do one thing after the next, after the next. And eventually the project will be completed. And so it is with the way we live our lives in light of the sovereign provision of God. We don't need to worry about the next 25 years. It's good for us to plan, but we don't need to worry about it. All we need to do is take the next step in our discipleship. We would love to know everything there is to know about the Bible. Well, if all you ever want to do is that, you're never going to go anywhere. What you need to do is pick up the Bible and start reading. Start learning. Start small somewhere. We long to see a great many people in Ladywell come to know the Lord. We want to see the church bursting at the seams and disciples growing mature in their faith. But if all we ever want is to arrive at that future, we're never going to do anything to get there. We have to start taking baby steps. We share the gospel with our neighbors, with our families, with the people in the street. We start to encourage one another to grow as disciples. We take small steps and so we build. We stop worrying about the big picture and arriving. And we busy ourselves with living for today in light of what God has given you. Give us this day, Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, our daily bread. Give us what we need to get through this day to take the next step. And let's not worry about the provision that's needed for six months or a year's time. God will supply what is necessary. Let's not get exasperated. Let's not get anxious or worried. Let's just take the next small step. If you read the life of John Payton, a Scottish-born missionary to the, the cannibal tribes of the New Hebrides, we find that when he went out there, I'm sure he had great plans, but he buried his wife and his newborn son three months into the mission work there. And if all he was thinking about when they went to the New Hebrides was the greatness of the task they were going to complete, he would have packed it all in at that point and headed home. But he recognized all he needed to do to begin to deal with his grief and to see the gospel spread was to take the next little step along. To not worry about the grand picture, but to focus on doing the next faithful thing so that the mission might be accomplished. And if you read of his life, you can see of the amazing things that were done because of his ministry. The book of Genesis is written to a struggling and to a suffering people who are unsure about who they are and where they're going. And so Moses lays out their foundations for them. 
They are a people who have been saved, spared, sovereignly by God, not in any way deserving of what God has given them. They are a people who have had God's sovereign providence guide their every step along the way. And they are a people who have had God's sovereign provision at every point so they can accomplish the will of God. That is who they are. And if they forget that, they're never going to leave the wilderness. And if we forget our foundations in this book, we're going to end up drifting about all over the place. And we're going to end up packing it all in and throwing the towel in when hardship comes and when trials impede our paths and when the losses start to mount up as they did for Israel in the wilderness. The whole book of Genesis is about God's sovereign plan that he will bring to bear upon men and women in this world who want nothing to do with God because they're content to sit in their own sin, even though it blinds them, hurts them, and leaves them without hope. Genesis is about the new life that his people will have in him, that he gives them, that affords them purpose, hope, and provision for the journey wherever they go and whatever circumstances they have to face. And as we begin to look forward to a new year and as we desperately hope for the end of 2020 and all that it's held, and as we think about all the promise of 2021 for us individually as a nation but also as a church, what better way is there for us to prepare than to look to our foundations, look at who we are. And ensure we stay firmly grounded so that we can withstand setbacks, attacks and problems and grow into the fullness of maturity and of all God's plans that he has for us. As we come to the end in our time in Genesis, be encouraged that if you have cast yourself upon Christ, he has sovereignly and completely saved you and set you apart for his own glory and pleasure. So take the next step, as small as it may be, to accomplish all that God has planned for you in your life. Amen.